Welcome to the podcast Adelante Leadership. I'm proud to be your co-host, Peter Block Garcia. Welcome to Adelante Leadership. I'm your co-host, Tania Hino. Season two is a series of episodes that encourage and inspire you to embrace the power of your leadership. We are leaning into the knowledge from season one's previous incredible guests. Dr. Ramona Beltran is a mixed-race Chicana of Yaqui and Mexica descent and dancer, activist, scholar. As an associate professor at the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work, her scholarship focuses on interrupting legacies of historical trauma that affect indigenous and Latine communities with a commitment to addressing issues facing women, youth, LGBTQ and two-spirit communities. She is particularly interested in disrupting the problem-focused approach to understanding indigenous and Latine health and well-being that is common in mainstream research. She does this by centering cultural protective factors, strengths and resilience, art and storytelling in investigating and collaborating with indigenous and Latine communities. Good morning. Welcome, Dr. Ramona Beltran. Thank you for joining us at Adelante Leadership. Bienvenida, Doctora Ramona. Buenos dias. Gracias. Thank you so much for having me. So grateful to be a part of this. So, Doctora Ramona, can you please share your story of who you are and where you are from? Thank you so much for starting with that question. My family on my mother's side is originally from Northern Mexico, and we are descendants of the Yaqui and Mexica peoples. Family on my biological father's side is originally from Northern Ireland and Germany. And I've actually just learned that through DNA testing. I grew up in a low-income single-parent household with my mom and my sister. So that's really my cultural standpoint. I'm a mixed-race Indigenous Chicana. And mm. I was taught to acknowledge all of my ancestors, even the absent, obscured, or painful ones. Because mm. that really is the whole of who I am and where I come from. And, you know, it's a beautiful and broken legacy of stories that are unfinished. But that is who is with you today. So a little bit about my family history and how I came to be here. My family first arrived. Oh, so this is the family on my mother's side. They first arrived mm -hmm. to this country around 1913 and came to Arizona. And they were working in primarily the mines in mm -hmm. Southern Arizona. Mm -hmm. And also on another side of my mother's family uh, on the railroads. They settled in Southern Arizona for some time, but then my great-great-grandfather passed away. And my other great-grandfather had some an accident that left him with head trauma from working on the railroads. Mm -hmm. So basically the whole family packed up and moved to California to follow agricultural work. Eventually they settled in the Bay Area and made home in San Jose, California, which is mm. where I was born. It was, as a, as a small child, it got pretty rough. And mm. after somebody shot into our home, my mom basically was like, that's it, we're leaving. And she packed my sister and I up and we moved to Southern Oregon with her best friend. Her name is Judy and she's like a second mom to me, but her family is from Oregon. Hmm. So we moved to Southern Oregon when I was about four years old. And we moved wow. to a small, rural, predominantly white town and even though both my sister and I are a fair skinned, folks knew that we weren't from there. They know when you're not one of them, right? Mm -hmm. so we, we always heard questions like, 
where are you from and what are you? It was such a frequent part of our childhood. My sister tells a story about how she was playing. She must have been five years old, mm. playing on the playground at school, swinging on a tire swing with one of her little friends. And he says, you know, baby, you're Mexican, but I like you anyway. But there were lots of moments like that for us, even with the unearned privilege, right, of mm-hmm. being fair skinned and citizenship you couple that with persistent poverty and in early childhood, and then a mom who struggled with lifelong um, health and mental health problems that really shaped who I was. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're a child, you see what's in front of you and you're shaped by those that teach you the world. My mom was always very socially conscious. So I learned about injustice early and I learned about it in the way that she pointed us toward it and I experienced it, but I didn't have language for it. So one thing though, that my mom was very adamant about was education for Mm -hmm. both my sister and I. I mean, I used to just battle it out with her, just battling about not wanting to go to school. And then Mm -hmm. there was a moment around high school, I fell in love with learning and it became mine. I just Mm -hmm. love to learn. And so it was through education over time that I started to learn the language to contextualize the experiences that I had, those ones that I was telling you about. And it was when I was in graduate school that I first learned about historical trauma and healing. Mm -hmm. And it was like this moment where a light bulb just went off because it gave me language to understand and contextualize those experiences. And specifically, everything really just made sense. I could attribute, you know, those poor health outcomes and those poor mental health outcomes, Mm -hmm. not just to my mom's or my community's individual Mm -hmm. behaviors, but to this longer history of Mm -hmm. colonization Mm -hmm. and then displacement and then Mm -hmm. xenophobia and then racism Mm -hmm. and then classism and sexism and all how those work together. At the same time, it contextualizes those things. It gives you language to name something that has really been your lived experience. Mm -hmm. And there's something really liberating about that. So for me, what I found was as the language was there, then the practice must follow. And Mm. so I decided that that was going to be the path that I would pursue to not only illuminate this language to my family and community, but also to try and work together with them to illuminate ways to address these things. What does leadership mean to you? And what is your journey like? You know, that is such a good question. And I was thinking about this yesterday and how so much of my younger years were just spent in self-doubt. And then as I moved into, you know, becoming a PhD student and even a young professor filled with that imposter syndrome, because I didn't feel like I fit into the boxes and the molds of what like a strong and good leader is. Leadership, as I'm reflecting on it, and I'm thinking about speaking from a place of my heart. It's what you do when people are not watching you. It is treating children with care and respect. And when you deviate from that to correct yourself, to have humility around that, it's teaching my children for me. This is really when I think about it in that deep way, it's teaching my children, their language, their traditions, Mm. their culture, It's teaching them to be proud of who they are. You know, those moments that I had when people would ask where you're from, who you are and feeling that deep shame, I want them to feel the opposite. And so Mm -hmm. my leadership is hoping to instill in them that confidence. It is centering community in our decision-making and our actions. And it's also taking a step back when everything is just too much and taking care of ourselves as individuals, resting, Mm -hmm. having little dance parties. (laughs) 
you know, I look to my children a lot for guidance and what it is to be a leader. Even this morning, we were talking about creativity and how kids are smarter than adults when it comes to creativity. And I just thought, you know, you're right. <laughs> I love how their innocence makes them so open to the world and to new ideas. And so to me, I think leadership is also having the openness to learn, especially to learn new ideas, even if they smash your old ideas. And I also, one last thought um, that I've really been having about what leadership is to me is I think about water and what water can teach me and teach mm. us. And many years ago, I was in a ceremony and there was a man who was, he was tending to the cedar in the ceremony. I remember him saying, water teaches us the most about humility because it always seeks the lowest place. It seeks to fill the container. And so when we need to reflect on that, to look to water for those teachings. I think about that a lot in leadership. There is an expected expertise that we are supposed to have as leaders. Uh -huh. I think the expertise is really around having humility to be vulnerable and to demonstrate to people and say, you know, I don't know. What do you yeah. think? Yep. And, and I'm willing to learn. That's beautiful. Just one follow up on children. And it's not that our children are better than us in creativity. It's that we choose to forget. <gasps> yes. Yeah. Yes. And we are all creative beings. And yes. then we choose perfection, white supremacy, white perfection oh. over creativity and letting go because children are, don't care what people say and the judgment. And so we have tons of lived experience that now we shut down that curiosity and that that creativity because of what people will say. Oh my gosh, Tanya, thank you for that teaching. I got chills and I think you're 100% right. This morning I asked my kiddos, I said, what do you think it would take for us all to sort of get into our creative bodies? And they were like, you know what we need to do, mom? We need a trampoline. <laughs> we need to jump because that <laughs> will get our juices going. Yeah. And, and I was like, you are so, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yeah. I mean, and you're right. Like if, if we just kind of shed the inherited, right. Characteristics mm -hmm. of white supremacy culture, mm -hmm. then we can tap right back into that just human quality of creativity, mm -hmm. which is not specific to children or adults. Mm -hmm. ah, thank you. <laughs> One of the things that you have in your bio on the university website says what you do. And it says, I listen to stories. Diseases are stories etched into our lands and bodies. Even if they are our inherited legacies, they can be rewritten. Can you tell us more about your work and what you mean by this? Yes, I love this question. And one of the reasons why I love this question, Peter, and I'm so grateful to you for asking me, is that I write about this a lot, but I haven't had a chance to talk it out. I see the world through a narrative lens. And to me, narrative is theory and practice. Narrative is everything. It is story and the world is made up of stories and this can be art, it can be media, it can be literal storytelling, it can be music, it can be the, the way we put our outfits together in the morning. There's narrative everywhere and it helps us to understand that the world is made up of and constructed of stories. So when we look through that narrative lens, we can see that and some of those stories are created about us and for us and put upon us, and those are oppressive. Some of those stories are created by us and for us, be liberating, because those are us challenging the dominant narrative. That's us truth-telling. 
there's a theory of embodiment and it's embodiment from a social determinants of health that helps explain that bodies tell the stories of our environments. So basically what this says is what happens in our social environments has very real impacts on our health and well-being. And likewise, what happens in our physical environment, specifically to the land, also impacts our bodies. So indigenous peoples have understood this since time immemorial, but research over the last several decades, specifically in the areas of epigenetics, it's confirmed what our communities have always known. What epigenetics illuminates in this context is that high-stress social environments and corresponding behaviors can affect gene expression. And this can be passed down from parent to child. So this idea, what happens to the earth happens to her people. Nelson and Gonzalez wrote, Mother Earth, we come from her. So we are part of her and she is part of us. If she is sick, I am sick and vice versa. Mm -hmm. The good news is that these changes, these epigenetic changes are not necessarily permanent. So with education, access to resources, and then those corresponding behaviors, these intergenerational epigenetic processes can be altered. And that's what I mean when I'm talking about diseases. And specifically in this context, I'm really talking about chronic preventable diseases that are really attributable to things that are systemic and socio-structural, like you know, the inequality that we experience every day. And these may be legacies that are inherited you know, from generations of colonization and all its cousins that we were just talking about earlier but they can be rewritten. For me, when I think about that, everybody in my mom's, in her sort of generation of my family, most of them are gone. And from these chronic preventable diseases, you know, my mom passed away from pneumonia, but when I got to be with her for the last seven hours of her life, um, the doctor said she hadn't been taking care of her diabetes. What this makes me think of is they attribute like her demise to her actions only, when, you know, we also found out that a few years earlier, she had, her insurance had, had lapsed. So right there, to me, that's a systemic failure. She had been going to the doctor. She had been seeking help. But if there were people there who understood this larger systemic and historic process, you know, they may have seen, okay, how can we support Consuela in finding health insurance and getting yeah. better educated around how to take care of her diabetes? So that's one aspect that, you know, just in our lived experience in my family, there are these many examples that reflect that historical and systemic process. From an epigenetic standpoint, I could be and am at higher risk for things like diabetes and cardiovascular mm -hmm. disease. And so I have tried really hard to live up to her dreams for me and mm -hmm. to do my best to care for myself so that I don't experience those things. And so far, you know, I've been able to do that all the way from the cellular up to the historical and colonial. It's all connected. It is fascinating your work and mm -hmm. how it's important to heal from trauma because if yeah. not, we can take care of our health. You know, I think this is also one of the ways that racism and white supremacy is, you know, just part of the daily confrontations we have. Mm -hmm. And I imagine her by that point, after all she had been through, she was mm -hmm. probably tired. I know that my mother was tired. She did her best for so long. You know, if we think about just the things that we come across on a daily basis, uh, you know, even with access and education, we still have to deal with the daily cuts, the daily yeah. assaults. And it's exhausting. From your research and your work, what have you learned about how to heal from 
and or disrupt the trajectory of these impacts on our health from colonization and racism. I think of storytelling as the most readily available technology that we have as human. Um, it's always been a part of what it is to be human. It's how we create meaning. And while in our research, we haven't done long-term studies to measure how story work or storytelling interrupts the impacts of trauma associated with colonization and racism across all of our projects in which we use different forms of storytelling. So we use arts-based research, digital storytelling, poetry, photo voice, oral history. We have seen several things that come up across really all of them. And there's three that I'll share with you. And one is finding language to name the pain. The second one is seeing one story and in somebody else, and then likewise being seen by someone else, which I think goes to that idea of belonging that you're talking about, Tanya, and then reclaiming and reauthoring dominant and marginalized narratives. You know, as an example, we did a digital storytelling as an indigenous media project in Aotearoa, New Zealand. But while we were there, we shared some digital stories from folks here with the folks who were participating. And the folks who were participating were Maori community and faculty and students at the university that I was working with. It was for them, this moment of this aha moment, seeing, you know, different versions of a colonial story, but so similar and how they were like, wow, you know, someone has experienced almost exactly the same thing and they're halfway across the world. And there was something also, I gave a talk on historical trauma and healing and there was an indigenous woman from the Cook Islands who came up to me and she said, thank you for giving me language to name something I've always known. So there's something mm -hmm. very liberating about mm -hmm. being able to really name an experience because when you name something, this is a narrative thing, right? Yeah. You give it a body, you give it form. And then you have something that you can address. And there's a way that the world gaslights us into thinking things like, oh, that's in the past. That's not really a thing. What happened then was then move on. And you know, our own community feels that way too. And I understand it. It's a natural response. And when mm. we are able to name something, then we have something we can do. So yeah. that has been really powerful across all of our projects. A representation, that second point, just being seen, having Oof. that sense of belonging. And you were talking about this when you're seen what that does, not only to your sense of self-esteem, right? Your sense mm -hmm. of self-confidence. It's such a human thing to belong, but mm -hmm. also to your vagal nervous system, right? Like mm -hmm. we're out in the world most of the time and the world for many of us, Latine folks, wherever we may be in this country, oftentimes will be one person, the only person there or one of a few and how protected we are, how our body tenses up, but we don't notice it mm -hmm. until we're with our people. And then our shoulders come out of our ears and yeah. we can breathe. And it's like, oh, this is home. This mm -hmm. is what belonging feels like. So that's really powerful. And then also just to revisit that reclaiming and reauthoring dominant and marginalized narratives. When we tell the truth about who we are from our own place, from our own perspective, there's something really powerful about that. It's liberation. It's an act of resistance. Every mm -hmm. time that we tell a story from our standpoint, mm -hmm. it is an act of, of resistance.
And that's why you mentioned that our stories are our medicine. And I was wondering if you can tell us about cultural responsive therapy. It may seem complicated, but it's actually very simple. To me, culturally responsive practice therapy is creating a space and practice that values the individual or the group for the whole of who they are. So we try not to see folks as just individuals, but individuals within families, communities, Mm -hmm. society, with a multitude of cultural traditions, beliefs and practices. And we need to invite all of those in. That's Mm -hmm. part of being culturally responsive and having also a consistent practice of self-reflexivity. And when I mean that, I mean that as practitioners, so maybe therapists or community organizers or people in leadership, that we are constantly giving ourselves the time to actively reflect on our own identities and our own positions in relation to power, privilege, and oppression. Because if you're in leadership, there is then a power differential. So we need to take that time to then really look at critically, how is that influencing or impacting our clients or communities to be considering always the dynamics of race and ethnicity, class, gender, religious and spiritual traditions, and taking stock of yourself and also checking in regularly with your client, with your communities. Mm -hmm. How's this going for you? Mm -hmm. What do you need? And then always, I think one of the last principles I'll highlight is to always try and do better. Always try and learn more. I feel like if there's one thing I have learned as someone who has a PhD and, you know, there is this Western narrative around Mm. expertise and a singular expertise. I know. If there's anything I've learned is that, wow. I know. I see how much I don't know. Ooh, I know. And what I'm so grateful for, though, in the position that I'm in as a professor is I get to be a student always. Mm-hmm. And I am so grateful for that. Dr. Beltran, how do you think that the legacy of colonization of Latinx people in particular has impeded our leadership? And how do you think we should interrupt or disrupt that legacy for ourselves to be more effective community leaders? I need to take a breath with this one because I can feel it. And if I go back to narratives, I think about the stories that colonization has told us that we are not good enough and created all kinds of very oppressive stereotypes about who we are, how we live in the world. And then in some ways, we have internalized those stories and we uh, turn them on ourselves and each other. And that is, you don't belong. You're Mm -hmm. not enough. And then within communities, we have colorism and we have classism and Mm. we have patriarchy and and the ways that men and women's roles are unequal. And those don't belong to us. Those were given to us, not Mm -hmm. given to us. They were imposed upon Mm -hmm. us. This is not who we are. The way that it gets acted out, I think, You know, sometimes things like machismo, we think that belongs to us. Mm. I don't see it that way. I think that these are responses. They're socio-structural responses to that colonial legacy. Mm. This is not how our ancestors did it. So when I think about what we can do, when I'm thinking specifically about leadership, so we have, we have some trauma work that we need to do. We need to heal. Yes. When I think about leadership, I think 
the first thing I would say is be your authentic self. Embrace and live into your culture unapologetically. It doesn't have to be perfect. There's no perfect or even 100% authentic way to be ourselves. You know, <laughs> I just recently gave a talk just a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was like a, a disciplinary TEDx style talk. So it's like a 15 minute rapid, you know, idea exchange. And I was planning my outfit <laughs> and I was like, okay, I need to wear something professional. I'm going to wear all black. And when I got there, um, I had worn my red boots, which I've been wearing for like 20 years. And I wore them to the airport so I could get them shined because they were in very bad shape. But then I got all these messages from my friends like, oh, it's so good to see you in your red boots. That brings back so many memories for me. Mm. And I was also visiting um, a Yaki sister and she gifted me a beautiful weepy in my colors, red and black. And I was trying on my outfits before and I put on the weepy, my jeans and my red boots and my aretes de Shakira. I was like, this is me. This is how I am. I feel like my most authentic self. And so, yes, that's a superficial cultural thing. Mm. It made me feel like I could show up on that stage and talk from an authentic place, from my lived experience, from the work that I do, which is grounded in community. A couple other things I will say, take up space. Do not ask permission. Take up space. Another thing I would say is don't ask for a seat at the table. Smash that table. <laughs> You know, yeah. and I think about, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion is always about that inclusion part. Let's bring these people to the table. And I'm like, the table's the problem. From a like transformative leadership perspective, exactly. we get rid of that leadership and we center our own ways of being, our own mm -hmm. ways of doing. Mm -hmm. That is what will change our world. I love your passion you're putting to your answers and it gives me chills that is bringing your authentic self. I, I know it's so difficult for a lot of our Latin leaders and a lot of our BIPOC community and our different sexual orientation folks, but I do feel like we can expect systems to make courageous spaces for us. Yeah. We need to make it for Yes. We need to do it. And unless we do it, it's not going to happen. It's true. What else would you like to share that we haven't asked about how to change the narrative about Latin leadership and healing and decolonizing? I think I, I'll go back to one of the points I was talking about, which is the ways that we internalize some of the colonial messages. One tool of oppression is the ways that we authenticity test and gatekeep around mm. language and culture in our own communities and identity. And again, I think that's not attributable to who we are. Again, this is attributable to colonization. These are responses to long-term oppression and we discipline ourselves into according to their norms and values around who belongs. White supremacy has constructed squares for us, right? We're in nature. I look to nature a lot for, okay, tell me something about identity. Well, nature embraces paradox. Mm. Nature embraces complexity, right? Mm. And living together in very intricate and inextricably linked connections. But I also understand that, you know, these responses are protective, we know there are people who have tried to take on our identities or have taken on our identities and have benefited from calling themselves Latine when they in fact are not. I get that. And it's totally understandable that we would feel protective and that we would have higher expectations around, well, prove to us who you are. I get yeah. that. And I think we can also embrace the idea that as we are healing, 
our language, our cultural traditions, our expressions are going to look a little different. Our healing is going to look a little different. And I would invite everyone in to being the person that sings the praises of your colleagues and communities when they're not in the room. Some of the things that you say are just catching my breath, but the one that I'm finding very moving is related to some gratitude that I have for some Indigenous community leaders that I used to work with who talked about how there's power in our breath and there's power in our words and how do we choose to use them just resonated with what you were talking about. Last question, what books or resources do you recommend to our listeners for our leadership journeys and this path of decolonizing and healing? Yes. So I was thinking about the folks that I look to when I need to be seen. Mm. (laughs) So when I can open those pages and I can be seen, And I know that there's some critiques and this is actually very exciting time that there are critiques on things like mestizaje and, you know, more um, critical analysis around uh, identity related to Afro-Latine and indigenous folks. It's an exciting time. I do think that there are things that we can still look to some uh, intellectual ancestors, I call them that we can look to and they're still around today too, but like Sherry Moraga. Yes. I look to her all the time. (laughs) I just open a book and I'm like, ah, yes, this is me. Gloria Anzaldúa. When I first read that book, I carried it around, honestly, probably for a solid year, everywhere (laughs) in my backpack, because it was the first time I had read a book that reflected experiences that I had, that my family had. And even with the critiques, if we look with an open heart, we we can embrace the critiques, engage the critiques, and also find things that are medicine to us. So Ana Castillo is another person I can think of. Oh, also in terms of fiction, Leslie Marmon Silko of all time is Ceremony. That to me is like such a perfect fiction example of historical trauma and healing. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Mm -hmm. I also, in terms of research, my go-to book is Decolonizing Methodologies by Linda Tuhiwai Smith, who is just a phenomenal Maori scholar. She's amazing. And in person, she is hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she is. She is just so incredible. Also, you know, intellectual ancestors to me, Bell Hooks, This is such a good question because just last night, my son would not go to sleep and he was like, mama, what are your favorite books? (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, there's a book called teaching to transgress. And I Mm -hmm. love that book. And I love ceremony. (laughs) He was Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay. What's your favorite star Wars movie? (laughs) He was not impressed with my book list. (laughs) But I think, you know, one thing I would say is I have found um, real healing in the intellectual ancestors, the writers, the thinkers who maybe are not exact reflections of my experience, but who may reflect some threads of my experiences. Mm -hmm. So Native and Indigenous scholars, Black feminists, critical Mm -hmm. feminists, uh, those who are really leveraging like ecological feminism, those are places that I'm going to right now just to like get some inspiration and ideas for how to keep doing this work. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Muchas gracias. De verdad, por, por el trabajo with all your passion. I just feel empowered and rejuvenated with the work you're doing. Thank you so much. Gracias a ustedes. Muchas gracias. We hope you were encouraged by this conversation with Dr. Ramona Beltran 
on healing and decolonization. Join us for the next episode when we talk with doctors Arturo Aldama and Frederico Luis Aldama about decolonizing Latin masculinities. We welcome your comments on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Apple. For more resources and information, visit our website, www.adelanteleadership.com. We want to hear your thoughts, ideas, and your Latinx leadership story. Muchas gracias por escuchar a Adelante Leadership. Thank you for tuning in and stepping into your Latinx leadership.